Hi everyone, I'm Tanya Luna, a psychology researcher and educator. And I'm Brian Luna. I think The X-Files is a documentary. And you're listening to Talk, Talk Psych, Psych to, to me. me, a show where I explain research and theories from the field of psychology. And I do my best to keep up. Let's get into it. Okay, so in a few minutes, I'll share with you the topic of today's show. Okay. But first, I wanted to tell you about an experiment conducted by psychologists Aronson and Mills back in 1959. Okay. We'll talk about some modern research, of course, like we usually do. But I want to start in the 50s because this is when the phenomenon that we'll be discussing... Phenomenon. The phenomenon that we'll be discussing really originated in research done in the 50s. So picture this study. Okay. Researchers recruit female college students and tell them that there's an opportunity to join a group that's been meeting for several weeks now to discuss sex. Yeah. I've seen this movie a few times. (laughs) They tell the participants that a girl that was part of the group had to drop out for scheduling reasons, and there's one open slot. And they split participants into one of three groups. Mm -hmm. The control group, where nothing happens, the mild group, which I'll explain in a moment, and the severe group. For the mild and severe groups, <laughs> they explain that to join the, this discussion group, they have to pass an embarrassment test. Oh, okay. And this entails reading a list of words without blushing or hesitating. <laughs> while a psychologist, probably wearing a lab coat, is just watching you and assessing your embarrassment level. Are they like dirty words? Because, I mean, this is the 50s, right? So, like, Would you pantyhose like to... was dirty back yeah. then. Yeah. Would you know? like to participate in this research? You know I do. Okay. So go ahead and open the first email that I sent you. All right. (laughs) Okay, so I want you to read those words out loud to us, and I'm going to determine if you pass the test. All right. Do do I have to pause or anything in between or anything like that? If you do, you might fail the test. So I'm going to watch you and make sure that you're not too embarrassed. Okay. Virgin, prostitute, petting. (laughs) How are you feeling? Good. I like that petting was like a... (laughs) Because petting of all those sounds the like the dirtiest. You know what I mean? Because like, especially if you had heavy petting. Petting, I, I associate with my animals, like my dogs. You know, I pet my dogs. So to like put it with with prostitutes and virgins, like you're like, ooh, what's the petting thing? Okay, so what's your embarrassment level like? I don't feel embarrassed okay. at all. Okay, all right, great. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you to read the severe. words in the severe email. <laughs> Wait, for people who are listening, I may seem all rough. I may seem all rough and tumble. But like for those of y'all who know me at home, know I'm a bit of a prude. <laughs> so, okay. So did you choose these words or is this part of no, the No, no, no. This is verbatim from the study. Okay, all right. So these aren't words that you chose just for me. No. Okay. These are words chosen for right. college girls in the 1950s. Don't say it like that. Then I'm going to be all embarrassed. <laughs> Before you do read it out loud, I do want to warn mm. our listeners at home that... NSFW. NSFH, possibly. Uh, hospital? <laughs> oh. Not safer. Oh, I was like, not safer. So we're not going to be able to beat these words home. out because we do want to give you yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the authentic yeah. scientific experience. And I'll say them all in English so you don't have to... Like, okay, so no just slime. three words. Go ahead. Right. And I'm going to watch right. you and make sure that you don't get too embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck cockscrew. <laughs> I'm not sure if you passed the test with that level of uh, daintiness in your Hold voice. F- Fuck <laughs> cockscrew. Okay, very good. How's your embarrassment level now? Yeah, I'm okay. I, I, I just picture like people that I know listen to this and like... So I'm not going to have you do this, but researchers also had these college students, aside from reading an obscene list of words, Mm -hmm. there were 12, by the way. These three were just given as examples, so I'm not sure what the rest of the words were. And in this severe condition, they also had to read two graphic passages from romance novels. So I'm not going to make you read that, but I'm glad that you had a little bit of that experience. Mm -hmm. At the end, whether in the mild or in the severe condition, all participants were told that they passed the embarrassment test (laughs) and they did well enough to join the group. 
And to catch up on the past week's meetings, they had to listen to what they thought was a live discussion, but it was actually a recording of a very, very dry discussion about animal mating. And not only was the topic boring, the participants were lame. The researchers write, they hemmed, hawed, and in general conducted one of the most worthless and uninteresting discussions imaginable. <laughs> On purpose. On did. purpose. Yeah, yeah just exactly. to see. Basically, their point was to make this group something that no one would want to actually join. Yeah. And, and people were still like lining up. After all this stuff, people were still like... Well, so that's what they wanted to find out. So after listening to this nonsense, the participants (laughs) are then asked, to what degree do they want to join the group for future discussions? So what would your prediction be of these three groups, control, mild, and severe, Mm -hmm. who, if any of them, would be interested in joining this super boring group? The mild or the control. Would be more interested in in joining. joining, So it turned out that the severe group was significantly more interested in joining. Wow. Why do you think that might be? I don't know. Because in my mind, I was thinking they've already crossed that threshold of um, of comfortability. So like, why would they do that? Now they're like jazzed up. They're now like, they look what see. I can do. Yeah, I can talk I about see, this. Yeah. And I want to see what else is out there. So to go from the high point of like F, C, and screw, and then go straight to <laughs> this is what they do. And then the man made. It's not, it's like going from. It from, wasn't even um, human mating. It was just animal mating. Right, 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 right. Lower animals. I'm not sure which animals those were. I would imagine those closest to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I would, that's what I would think. But what, what's what's the research say? So there are a few different explanations to consider. One explanation connects to something we talked about actually back in episode two, which is emotional misattribution. So it's possible that all that steamy sex talk <laughs> made their heart rate speed up and they attributed that level of arousal to oh. their interest in the group. That was not the psychologist hypothesis. I just mm. wanted to call that out because that is a possibility. The other explanation for the participants' reaction, also how Aronson and Mills interpreted it, Mm -hmm. and that's what we're going to be talking about today, is something called cognitive dissonance theory. Cognitive dissonance is something we feel when our beliefs or actions contradict one another. So in the case of these college students, the action, I put a lot of effort into getting into this group, and the belief this group is lame clash with one another. (laughs) dissonance is uncomfortable so the theory goes to get rid of the dissonance we either have to adjust our behavior or adjust our beliefs often unconsciously in this case believing i guess i do want to be part of the sex discussion group so it's almost like you're editing backwards to trick yourself into thinking like why you're here i must i must actually want to be part of this thing otherwise you feel pretty bad about all the stupid things that you just did and what is this called again cognitive dissonance Dissonance. theory that's like it's like an infinity stone it's like something. How so? Thanos. Well, it just, it's so powerful. It's like this time thing where you go back and ch- it's like the time and the mind stone combined. <laughs> it's like you, you go back and you have to shift someone's mind, it, your own in retrospect. Like that's pretty powerful. It's like I can see that. It's in like his self-inception. Like, he's like inevitable. You know, and, and you're like, oh yeah, I, that's why I did that. I think I like this because <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> it makes me think of our last episode, episode five, where we talked about how your perception is constantly a few steps behind reality. Mm-hmm. The reason that is, is that we're always editing what's happening in front of us for it to make sense to us. Yeah. Interesting. Have you ever been part of a really intense initiation ritual? Yeah. I played high school football in Texas. Growing up, we always heard about this thing called the paddle line. Before football practice officially starts, we work out with the upperclassmen. So what they did was they ran us out through the neighborhood like we always do. We ran through our this neighborhood that was there. But then there was this ditch, this huge ditch, like the one in Greece, you know, that they race in at the end. You know what I'm talking about? The Where country the... or the movie? No, the movie. Okay. 
<laughs> you know, when they're doing the Go Grease Lightning, na 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 Go Grease Lightning. I don't know if we have the copyright to that. That's as much as we can sing. So anyway, it's like that. People use it just like dumping around. There's like rocks and beer bottles and broken glass and all kinds of sticks and all kinds of stuff. Just like accumulates down there in this thing. So they run us to this place. And then the seniors or the, the upperclassmen, they get in two lines, right? And they each have something. Either they brought with them or they found there or they use their hands. And they stand with their legs apart. And then we have to bear crawl and go through their legs and then come back the other way through the other line's legs. And while we're doing that, they hit us with boards, two by fours, belts, <laughs> shoes, uh, hands, whatever. But what's great about it is that once you do it, that's it. You're in. You don't ever, well, you don't ever have to, to go through it again. It's not like they're like, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, no. But but sometimes, like, if you don't do it right, then they might make you run it through again or, or if you So what up. do you think? Did going through, what is it called? Paddle line? Paddle line. I keep thinking chorus line. It was very different. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I think I would have preferred chorus line to this. Did going through paddle line make you more passionate about being part of this group? Did it? Yes, one hundred percent. It made it made us not only a part of the football team at the high school. The core group that went from the freshman year, we all finished playing together our senior year. So it solidified the group. Yeah. So cognitive dissonance theory would theorize that the reason you all felt so close is that you needed an explanation for yourself for why the heck you would endure something. So nutty. I 100% agree with that. <laughs> because you look back, and even as I'm explaining it, it's very uncomfortable because it sounds like something terrible. But I, I, you know, if I had a son, I'd probably talk him out of it because it sounds nuts. But for me, I was so proud, proud to be with the guys, proud yeah. that it was over, that I did it, that I didn't bail because some guys actually got down there and then took off. Intense initiation rituals and ongoing rituals are thought to be one of the mechanisms that keep people entrenched in cults. Leon Festinger, the psychologist who kickstarted cognitive dissonance theory, published a book in 1956 with Henry Riken and Stanley Schachter called When Prophecy Fails. In it, they share their study of a UFO cult called the Seekers hmm. that believed that the world would end on December 21st, 1954. <laughs> and then when the prophecy didn't come true, awkward, <laughs> they actually became more passionate and they put even more time and effort into recruiting more followers. Festinger and his team believed that that extra emphasis on recruitment mm -hmm. was actually a way to lessen the pain of cognitive dissonance. Of being wrong. Of being Dead wrong. wrong. Jeez, what a weird time for the world. 1954, like, shit's December just getting started. 21st, 1954. <laughs> it doesn't have the same kick as, like, 2012 or was it the... Yeah, but if you're living then, you don't feel like things are just getting started. You I feel guess. like... We've been around for a while. Yeah, I guess. It's just, Time to wrap up. I mean, color TV wasn't even a thing that, you know, like not, not really. So it's like, wouldn't you wait around to see what color TV looks like and then be like, oh yeah, now it's going to end? This is going to be people in 2056 looking back and being like, I can't believe they thought 2020 or whatever, 2000 <laughs> was the year. Was it 2012? It was 2012. That's also the really The Mayan random. calendar? I was like, how would these guys? Point is. This seems to be something that humans intuitively maybe are familiar with, that if you get people to participate in something that is hard to justify, that we work backwards to go, okay, 
I must really believe in this. This must be really important. I think modern politics, there's a lot of that. We do vote someone in and we're like, oh, this person is the one. And then they turn out to not be so great. And then we're like, yeah, but, you know, so we're, we're still like a, a tighter political system now because of that, you know. Yep. Yeah. You're basically going, I voted for XYZ person. Mm-hmm. Part of your belief system might be going, I don't like what's happening. That's so uncomfortable to us that for many people, they'll justify and explain and sort of minimize. Yeah. So I mean, geez, that's, that's really what that, we're going to be talking that's about That's like Facebook all in a nutshell right now, whether it's politics or whatever. You, like you, a giant cognitive dissonance Of people not wanting to machine. be wrong. So Festinger and researchers who followed him believe that this is kind of a fundamental way that the brain works. We're going to mm-hmm. dig into that today and explore right. together, do we believe in that or not? Can I share two more old cognitive dissonance studies with you? Absolutely um, not. <laughs> What you, Goodbye, what'd everyone. Yeah, what did you say? Like, why did you? Of course. like. Yeah. I think I'm just used to it because usually <laughs> when I talk too much about psychology, you're like, ugh. So I'm like, please, sir, may I please oh, share please. a study with you? I get like you. four minutes with video games, comics, and, and horror films. And that, that that's not like four separate minutes. That's four minutes I have of your attention <laughs> to talk about those things, and then I got to get them all in. So. Fine. Here's the thing. I'm going to share two more studies with you. And you're going to listen. <laughs> the reason I want to share this with you is just to show you kind of the, the larger scope of what has fallen under the umbrella of cognitive dissonance theory. These are a lot less dramatic. So this next one is the OG research conducted by Festinger and Carl Smith in the 1950s. And OG original gangster research. Exactly. The one that started it all. The study that started it all. All right. So they had participants perform really, really boring tasks like turning these pegs in a pegboard <laughs> for 30 minutes straight. Oof. And then they asked these participants to tell others that were about to participate in the study. These were actually mm-hmm. just actors, but as far as the participants mm-hmm. knew, these were real humans. They were told to describe the study that they had just participated in as really fun and exciting. Okay. So essentially to lie. These participants were then split into three groups. One group got nothing. Mm-hmm. One group was paid a dollar, and the other group was paid $20 to describe the study as really exciting. (laughs) Later on, the people who had just pitched this study as really exciting but had really been turning pegs for 30 minutes, they were asked to rate how interesting the experience actually was and how important they thought the research was. So what is your guess? Who found the research most interesting and important? The $20 people. No? The $1 people. Okay. $20 $20 is a decent amount of money to get paid in the to tell a quick lie. Hell yeah. Yeah. So basically, you didn't experience cognitive dissonance because you were like, why did I say it was interesting? Because I got $20. Okay. But the people who got a dollar, that's not much. They had to reconcile in their minds why they lied. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they tricked themselves into believing that the study was more interesting and more important than it actually was. So they, they believe their BS. They saying. believe their own BS. Or at least that's what they told the researchers. They told yeah. the researchers, yeah, this was fun. <laughs> but this is also in the 50s where there wasn't like PlayStation and Xbox and stuff like that. So, you know maybe, I mean? it was so really like fun? maybe it was fun. Maybe these guys like, <laughs> maybe they were like, yo, I put a, a peg in a hole the whole day, kid. I was there for like six hours. I could have been there for explain eight. why the $1 people said it was more interesting. But it's it's the 50s. $1, you buy a Mustang but with then that you would convertible. Think, imagine if you played this amazing video game and then you got paid $20, which in 1950s time is even more than $20, to tell people that it's awesome. I think you'd still think it was pretty darn awesome. Yeah. But in this case, getting paid less made them more excited about this peg game. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the last classic cognitive dissonance study that I'll share with you. This one conducted by Aronson and Carl Smith in 1963. Same Aronson from before? Same Carl Smith from before as well. This was like the cognitive dissonance bunch. Damn. 
So this was done in the 60s. It was later reproduced several times as recently as 2007. In this study, researchers showed kids a toy, Mm -hmm. but then told them they couldn't play with it. (laughs) Science. You'll stink. (laughs) But the good news is that the kids knew pretty intuitively how to cope with it because their response was to devalue the toy. So essentially, (laughs) they were like, if I can't have it, I must not want it. So they like tricked themselves into believing that the toy wasn't that great anyway. So it's it's like a little bit of denial to cope with. (laughs) Totally. But kids still do that to this day. You know, like you tell them not to play with it. It's stupid. I don't want to play with it. I like that this research was done with kids because it shows that it's something that we figure out pretty early on in life. So that's, I guess that's my, that was my question is why do they choose or how do they choose what experiments they're going to do with kids? I guess you're, what you're saying is they wanted to see how early we learn this. Oh, wow. A lot of times kid research is done to see if something is innate versus learned or even if it's learned, like how early on do you learn it? So CDT is just rationalizing and you guys call it CDT. Cognitive dissonance theory in and of itself is the hypothesis that when our actions and our beliefs contradict one another, it creates this extreme state of discomfort. Following that state of discomfort, there are different options that you can take. So sometimes you rationalize, sometimes you change your behavior, sometimes you change your belief. Oh, so you think people like actually learn from this? Thing. Yeah, and that's what I want to get into in today's episode is it's not all unconscious. What's really interesting about cognitive dissonance is when we actually start to learn from it. And the thing is that these kids kind of had it right. So you can call it lying to yourself, but over 40 years later, Carson Warsh and team came across a phenomenon they dubbed goal disengagement. Mm-hmm. They found that people with the highest subjective well-being, which is psychology speak for happiness. <laughs> God, so I'm these so folks, subjective well been today. Subjective well-being, birthday to you. <laughs> Anyway, so the people that were the happiest were better than average at letting go of unattainable goals and finding new goals for themselves called goal re-engagement. A great example of goal disengagement and re-engagement is actually something you brought up yesterday. The Rock, Dwayne... Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne Johnson apparently used to play football. Mm -hmm. He played for the Miami Hurricanes. And what happened? He had size. He had ability. He just didn't have the ability for the next level for the NFL. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say The Rock was a terrible athlete. No, he was he was a, a, a Division One football player. But that's why but, it's so interesting because he could have said, this is my dream, I'm going to commit to it, I'm mm-hmm. going to stick to it, I'm going to make it happen. But actually he disengaged from that goal, yeah. re-engaged with another goal, and became arguably way more successful than he uh, ever absolutely. could have been with the old goal. Arguably, yeah, like one of the one of the most famous recognizable wrestlers of all time. Deciding that you don't want something because you can't have it could actually be a Mm. really healthy thing. Mm. I think The Rock is a really great example of what happens when you give up as a result of noticing a dissonance between what you want and what's actually happening. So that's the thing. Contrary to popular belief, cognitive dissonance isn't bad. It's actually super important because it signals to us that there's something to re-examine or learn. So ideally, when we feel the dissonance, we actually pause and use it as an opportunity to explore what's going on. So, you know, I always come back to true crime. (laughs) But do, like, psychopaths lack the ability for this? Because oftentimes they do justify their actions with terrible, horrible things they've done. Or you might argue that someone who's like a, a passionate killer, they are not <laughs> doing anything that's incompatible with their beliefs. Oh, that's true. Or maybe not serial killers, but like one-time killers, you know, like um, then all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, I had to because, right. you know, yeah. X, Y, Z. Yeah. But the, the best thing you can really do is when you notice the dissonance, actually sit with it mm-hmm. because that's the precursor to some really, to real personal growth. The problem with cognitive dissonance is when we unconsciously shake it off, 
by essentially lying to ourselves. So for example, various researchers over the years have found that many of us resolve that feeling of dissonance by devaluing any conflicting perspective. Some common dissonance-busting tactics include finding more people to agree with you. Dissonance-busting. So <laughs> Makes you, me you, feel good. You, you say it, and I'm just going to do the, the, the thing in the back. Some common dissonance-busting tactics include finding more people to agree with you. So that's like the UFO cult. I can't be wrong if I'm in good company. Trivialization. Denial of responsibility, <laughs> using drugs, alcohol, or distractions to avoid the pain. Busting makes me feel good. <laughs> okay, so let's use <laughs> cheating as an example. Hey, why are you looking at me? Let's see how good you are at busting the dissonance that might come from cheating on your partner if you also <laughs> fundamentally believe that you are a good and honest person. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about some ways that you can mute the dissonance. So number one, finding more people who agree with you. How might you do that? Going to uh, that website, dirtbag.com, and going on the forum forums. I'm just kidding. I don't know if that's a real. I don't know if that's a real thing. <laughs> Meanwhile, dirtbag.com is like this really nice group of farmers that's just like selling soil. Manu- people selling manure and soil. They're like, huh? Oh, that's great. Okay. Um, but maybe I guess, finding friends who have yeah. had that experience and who are like, hey, you know, we're hanging all out with players. Been through it. You know, like hanging out with people of that ilk that are like. You know, OPP. Yeah, you know me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> How about minimizing or trivializing? How might you do that if you've cheated on someone? Um, saying stuff like, we're not even married. I mean, look, we're, we're free to see other people as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is an it's open relationship. It's not cheating if it's, I don't have feelings for this person. Right, right. It's not cheating. Say, uh, what is it? Different zip code, different area code. Like, that's okay. Yep, I was drunk. I was drunk. So it doesn't count. Yeah. Great. How about justifying your behavior? I guess I was drunk could be a justification. Mm-hmm. Or abdicating responsibility. What's an example of How that? about like, I, I got hurt. So I did that. You know what I mean? Like he my or she, partner yeah, started my partner it. hurt me, said some stuff about me. So I went out and, I, you know, what was I supposed yeah, to do? Yeah, they haven't been loving. They've been ignoring me. They've yeah, been busy. Yeah. Exactly. So there you have it. Brian and Tanya's tutorial for how not to feel bad <laughs> for cheating on your partner. Uh, DM me. I have some more suggestions. Also excuses. I also do excuses. You can also use these tactics for avoiding the pain of cognitive dissonance that comes from being a little racist. For example, mm-hmm. you can always be like. I don't think you're a little racist. There's no such thing as a little... (laughs) Being someone who is of I guess I was minimizing Yeah, that's that's very minimizing. (laughs) Uh, There's no such thing... Let me just put it out there. For those of you who are feeling a little racist, you're racist. It's not salt. You don't do a peck of racism. It's not like like cinnamon or too much racism. Do you want to do this for racism? If you wanted to be okay with a deeply held view that certain people are worse than others... (laughs) You're giving me this horrified look right now. Uh, (laughs) But let's say that you recognize yourself like holy crap certain people of a certain shade make me cross the street but you see yourself shade (laughs) but let's say that you see yourself as someone who believes that everyone is equal dissonance kicks in how might you reduce that dissonance for yourself you mean come around to the good side i'm being kind of playful with this obviously ideally you go huh I'm feeling this thing. Let me really examine I'm that. I'm a fucking racist. <laughs> yeah. Like ideally, actually change starts when you go, oh, I am racist. Let You're talking about how to, how to get out of this. How might you hide it from yourself? Oh, how? I don't mean them. You know what I mean? I'm talking about them. Oh, I have you know? black friends. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have. Yeah. I have a lot of black friends, you know, or something like that. I love or, hip hop. I have nothing against 
the language, I just, they need to speak American when they're here. <laughs> you know, finding or, people or who agree even, with you, even that's like, another Even option. like sexism as well. Remember when the, when the all-female Ghostbusters came out and like the horrible things that friends of mine were saying. Like, look, they can do anything they want to. They just can't mess with this movie. You know, you're like, like they, what is it? It's, it that's the thing. About. When we start hearing that kind of rhetoric, that's mm-hmm. often dissonance at work. Or rather, that's dissonance busting. busting at work. Whereas really what we need to do is say, hey, my actions are incompatible with my beliefs. What's going on here? Let me actually learn from that. It could be things like not pursuing your life goals. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're abdicating responsibility by saying, oh, I'm just too busy. Maybe eating animals because you're saying they're delicious or whatever else kind of deep down feels inconsistent for you. Yeah. No amount of lying to yourself will make the dissonance go away all the way. I guess it all starts with being honest with yourself. I think the alternative to lying to yourself is kind of befriending your cognitive dissonance. When you feel it, you pause, ideally ask yourself, what is this discrepancy? And then your choice becomes to either change your belief, change your behavior, or honestly just let yourself kind of marinate further and and live with that dissonance until you're ready to make a change. A beautiful example of facing your dissonance is actually the story that you just shared with me. I don't know if you'd be willing to talk about it, but the one about your dad and Montel Williams. So um, this was years ago when Montel Williams was still on. I don't know if you, for those of you all, I'll I'll pause for a second. Montel Williams. So for those of you who need need to Google Montel Williams. But he had a talk show and, and, and my dad used to watch. It was like a daytime talk show, you know, like a Dr. Phil or something like that. So I'm on my way to work one day. I'm on the train and I get a call and he's like, Mijo, I need to talk to you. And I was like, yeah, dad, well, I'm on my way to work. Can I, can I call you later? He's like, no, no, no. I need to talk to you right now. And I was like, okay, all right. Is, there, is everything okay? Like something happened? He's like, look, I just want you to know that you could tell me anything. Tell me anything you want. I don't want you to ever feel like you, you can't tell me that. I'm going to love you anyway, no matter what. I was like, okay, dad. Um, all right. I, I, I know that, you know, like I got, I got to go. Is that it? No, Mijo, I just want you to know I'm going to love you no matter what. You know, so if you have something to tell me, I need to know right now. My dad's crying. My dad, you know, I've only heard my dad cry like maybe at that point, maybe four or five times in my life. And it turns out (laughs) he was watching Montel Williams and the subject was my kid went to college and now they're gay. And um, (laughs) college made my kids gay. College made my kids gay pretty much or, or something like that. But it was a coming out show. Yeah, it was a coming out show, but it wasn't good like for, for every participant. What triggered my dad is that there were a couple of instances on there where the kids came out and the parents like shut them down and like treated them really terrible. And, and before that, they give the story of how close the parents are, Yeah. you know, and it triggered something in my dad. And he called me and he was like, I just want you to know that if you're gay, Mijo, you could tell me. I was like, Dad, I'm not gay. It, it meant so much to him. He just needed me to know he's going to be That's there on, on his beautiful. side. Yeah, so. And the reason I think of that as a really beautiful dissonance story is that your dad, like many people growing up in, you know, where, where he was raised, mm-hmm. gay slurs were super common. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. And so I think probably reflecting back on maybe some of the things that he had said and then recognizing this very deeply held belief he had that he's going to accept and love his son no matter what, mm-hmm. he felt that dissonance. <laughs> and instead of being like, Oh, but I was just joking around. Everyone knows that I'm joking when I say those words. He decided to act on it. He decided to go, I want to make sure that I'm resolving this feeling that I have by showing my son that I love him no matter what. So thank you, Dad. Thanks, Pop. So that's cognitive dissonance theory. (laughs) Yes. But before we wrap up this conversation, I want to address a related concept that I think is really important in this day and age, and that's the consistency principle. 
Perhaps the person who's popularized this concept most is Professor Robert Cialdini, who's one of the leading thinkers on the topic of influence and persuasion. Yeah, I have Cialdini's jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I got to check. I got to check my closet. <laughs> People are really into this guy, like yeah. especially in sales and marketing. There probably are Cialdini jerseys. I think they're called Cialdini. I'm not chiding you. I think they're called Chaldeanites. Chaldeanites, yeah. So anyway, Chaldini did a lot of work to figure out how we can influence others. And one pattern he came across is that people are motivated to take action if it makes them feel or look consistent. So for example, Mm -hmm. if I wanted to convince you, let's say to do the laundry... I might say oh, something like... Do something else. I love doing laundry. You know that. Like, do, <laughs> laundry's my thing. Let's say do the litter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do litter's yeah. good. So if I wanted to convince you to do the litter, yeah. I might say something like, you know, you've talked so much about how much you love our cat and... Well, that, that wouldn't be true. Okay. Let me find a real thing. So I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I might say something like, keeping the house smelling good and looking clean. You know, you've talked about how important that is to you. I also really appreciate that, you know, you keep your word. You're someone who sticks to your commitments. So would you please do the litter? <laughs> wow. You've done this too. No. Damn, you hit me with that. I don't think so. Yeah, you always do these psychological you put me in these you put me in these positions that make me psych proof because I you I'm building these walls against your little tactics. Now I know. <laughs> now I know. So the later research has found that it works on some people but not all. In the US the estimate is about 50/50, so it seems like some of us care more about being consistent than others. Outside the US the number is even lower. So interestingly in collectivist cultures like Asia or Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. there's a study done in Poland for example, people care more about being consistent with what other people do and think than internal consistency with themselves. But either way, most of us seem to have at least some commitment to internal consistency, acting in line with our beliefs, which sounds totally great, but the problem happens when our commitment to consistency outweighs our willingness to change. An example might be something like, well, I've always voted Democrat, so I guess I'm a Democrat. It would be shameful for me to change my vote. You know, I've always voted Republican, so of course I'm going to continue to vote Republican. Or maybe people saying, you know, well, I went on TV and I talked about the fact that I don't believe in climate change, so I better not change my perspective because people are going to think that I'm wishy-washy. So it all goes back to, like, again, hanging on to your beliefs, right? So, like, that's what this whole thing is, is, like, hanging on to being right, like what we talked about And I'm arguing that... Dissonance hits us hard, particularly if we need to feel not just right, but consistent. We need to feel like I'm not just right right now. I've been right in the past. Mm -hmm. One other cognitive tendency I want to highlight is something called confirmation bias. And it's our tendency to discredit or kind of just avoid information that doesn't support our beliefs Mm -hmm. and to overvalue information that we already agree with. So for example, researchers Tabor and Lodge found that when it comes to politics, we tend to accept perspectives we already agree with fairly uncritically, but we raise the bar very, very high for opposing arguments. Mm -hmm. You talked about Facebook before and kind of this commitment to being right. Can you share a little bit of your thoughts on that? During the last election, one of my friends from back home was on Facebook once and he was like, okay, I need someone to just tell me why I should vote for Hillary. And a lot of people brought up these really good points about like what her policies are, foreign policy, and what she wants to do domestically, and what she wants to do with education, and what she wants to do. Things that kind of opposing Trump in terms of personality as well. Uh, She's never said this. She's always supported women. She's always supported this. I think there were like 34 people, different people joined in. Can you imagine how excited they were? Yeah. (laughs) And it wasn't. This is my opening. Seriously. And it wasn't ugly. It never got ugly. And his last statement was, yeah, I don't see anything. I'm still voting for Trump. (laughs) 
so it was really strange. Like all these people really went out of their way to, to form these really. But he's not good, alone. Yeah, yeah. This this mm. is how we work. I mean, yeah. it's not just with politics. It's really with anything. Where if we are set in our ways, it's not that we won't hear other perspectives. It's that we set the bar really, really high to change our minds. Whereas if we read something and we already agree with it, even <laughs> if it's not said very well, you're like, wow, they know what they're talking about, and. To your point, it gets even worse. So researchers, Andreas Mojic and team, found that we tend to like the people we agree with more than the people we disagree with. And the people <laughs> that we agree with, we tend to perceive them as more competent and, yeah. of course, more correct. So not only do we hold on to our own consistency, we also make the people around us consistent, which is basically the UFO cult coping strategy all over again, mm -hmm. leading to less cognitive dissonance, which then leads to less listening and less learning. So in our last few minutes, Brian, yes, what are you going to do to fix this? One of the things I started doing that when I read something that kind of gets me enraged, I let myself seethe for a bit. I let myself feel what I'm going to feel, right? Like, oh, those sons of bitches and I can't believe that this. And then the next thing I do is I read the opposing thing. So like I'll wow. go to another news outlet and read that side. And it, I can't tell you enough how much it calms me down because it puts me back to like a, a starting point of zero. Because now you're hearing what others are thinking about the same subject. Oftentimes I'll read like CNN and Fox News. Okay, so great idea is to actually force yourself to feel more of that dissonance by reading opposing views. I wonder if even we could look at that list again of what are some of the ways that people minimize dissonance to see how you could maximize dissonance. So for example, finding more people who agree with you. What are some ways that you've actually intentionally found more people that disagree with you? I guess it's just how you decide to engage. I would say instead of doing a Facebook back and forth, do a phone call. And going back to that consistency principle, I can't imagine someone would be like, going back to your friend, tell me all the reasons that I'm wrong about Trump. And then people give him good reasons and he goes, oh, wow, I guess you're right. Like it's actually potentially really high pressure mm -hmm. to change your mind so publicly. Yeah. That's even more scary than changing your mind privately. I love the idea of one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I, and I do think it also has to do with like where you're from and like there's a culture thing. I mean, there, there's so much to it. And that goes back to the research around depending on what culture you're from, consistency might not just be important internally. You might feel pressure to be consistent with others around you, people which, of your religion, people of your nationality. Yeah, I, exactly. Which is why I think that when leaders of religious organizations say something silly, if they say something anti-gay, then they have to go back and say, well, that's not what I mean. The Bible says that. It's not me. <laughs> Jesus says that. You know what I mean? You're like, Jesus never said Which Jesus. is the abdicating responsibility. Exactly. That's what I mean. I think politics, political leaders, flip-flopping nowadays, what? Whereas it used to be a sign of like logical thinking. Yeah. I think this. Here's some facts. Okay. Maybe I don't think this anymore. To me, that's a great leader. Yeah. To me, that's that's a, like, when I, when I was a, a managing or whatever, like something, and I thought a particular thing in my... Uh, associates were to come up to me and say, "Well, this is this is what we're, we're dealing with," and I'd be like, "Oh, well, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Let's let's look at this and let's change it." That's a, that's a sign of a good leader. I'm not saying I was a good leader, but that's a, that's what I want in a leader: someone who can shift perspectives like that. Do you remember John Kerry? They had these flip flops with his head on it called John Kerry flip flops. Oh my god! Yeah, because he would change his mind or like change his mind once, and all of a sudden yeah. the whole country was basically saying, "We don't believe you because you changed your perspective." Well, I remember when with the whole thing with in elections after we went to war with Iraq, people were like, you were for the war and now you're saying you're not. Well, yeah, when we were going to war, you were saying that there were these weapons of mass destruction pointed right at us and that they were going to come any second and there was going to be the next wave of terror. Yeah. We got there and there was like, like, like looking for your car keys. You know, they were here a second ago. <laughs> I, you know, I left, I left the weapons of mass destruction on the nightstand and I, you know what? I, 
I'm going to ask the person who cleans. The person who cleans wants to move the weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> and then now we're like, yeah, I'm not in it. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, of course I'm not for yeah, the war. Yeah, of course you change your mind when the situation When new changes. facts come in. Yeah, of course. So if you're in a leadership position or in a position of influence, tell your stories of your mind changing. I think they look at voters like numbers and not people. And once you do that, you kind of lose sight of who you're trying to lead and what you want to do. It's almost like you're looking for a slogan or a brand versus mm -hmm. real conversations. People are looking for hashtags. Yeah. Everything is a hashtag. There's no nuance in a hashtag. Yes. So I love that one-on-one -on -one conversation. That's where real change happens. That's where that nuance kicks in. Reading opposing news sources, maybe listening to different podcasts, reading books written by people who you would never think of as someone mm -hmm. that you would agree with. How about the cognitive tendency to minimize, trivialize, justify, or abdicate responsibility? How do you think we can kind of flip that to be able to embrace our dissonance? I think anytime you think you're right about anything, you go and you read something. You read some kind of literature to understand a little bit more. You know, I think a lot about like Vietnam and like what we were taught in school was maybe an hour with it in high school. Wow. Maybe even middle school, we, we talked about it. And once you learn that, you're like, hey, this is what we were. This is what we stood for. This is we were right. And we went in there and we did this and we did that. And then as you get older, all this information comes out and you learn that, oh, well, there was a lot more to that politically mm -hmm. than boots on the ground. I always have to be careful when you are pretty sure that you're yeah. on the side of justice. And Absolutely. Good. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And then I think the other thing is just taking responsibility, is not being scared to do that. Yes, yeah. maybe you will learn some things about yourself that you don't like, but really saying, hey, it's my job to learn. It's my job to be willing to consider different perspectives. Yeah. My takeaway from this research is embrace the dissonance. Our world is far too complicated right now for anyone to have any right to feel smugly confident mm -hmm. in their rightness. So let's just, you know, feel more confused and more curious together. And listen, I would say this just makes me want to listen more. Makes yeah. me want to like take in more, like what we talked about last week, absorbing more. Absorb. Yeah. yeah. With that in mind, thank you for listening to Talk, Talk Psych, Psych to, to Me. me.